Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, today's episode is brought to you by Dermansky Editorial Services. Marcy Dermansky is an editor. She can help you get your book good. Do you know what I'm talking about? If you've written a novel, if you're working on a novel or a collection of short stories, or perhaps a work of creative nonfiction, and you need a little help, you need someone to look at it, you need to bounce some ideas off of someone, Marcy could be the perfect person. Go to marcydermansky.com, click on editing services to learn more. marcydermansky.com. She's an editor. She edits. She can help you. She can edit you. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, right. Brad Listy. Right. Just one person right. and just one right. time. Right. 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 <laughs> right. Here we go again. This is it. This is the Other People Podcast. Welcome to the program. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. Thank you for tuning in. I appreciate that. My guest today is Roxanne Gay. Uh, her new story collection is called Difficult Women. It's available now from Grove Press. This is Roxanne's first appearance on the podcast since, uh, what is it, 2012? January of 2012. It's been five years since she uh, originally appeared on this show. She was my guest in episode 34 uh, in support of her debut story collection, Aiti. That was five years ago. It's hard to believe uh, that all of that time has gone by and that it's been that long since I've spoken with her uh, on the program. But uh, she makes her return today. It's very good to have her here. It's been quite a five years for Roxanne Gay, and she and I are going to talk all about that. I think you're going to enjoy it. Uh, before we get there, I want to read some listener mail. I'm a little overdue. Uh, thank you for all the emails. For those of you out there listening uh, who would like to write in, the address is letters at otherppl.com. I should say that before uh, I forget. Letters at otherppl.com. I always love hearing from you guys. So uh, this first letter comes from a listener named Greg. He says, hi, Brad. I've been listening to your podcast semi-regularly for years, but have never written to you. Though I'm not a writer by trade, I just finished a science PhD. I like hearing about the craft and also find that your show provides me with a lot of new perspectives on life in general. One question. A majority of your guests identify as female, at least in the times I've listened. That's great. I was just wondering what you think the reason might be. Are there more female fiction writers? Are they more amenable to being on podcasts? Thanks, Greg. You know, I don't want to, uh, 
overdo it, but I am, I'm proud of the fact that I have a lot of women on this program. It's something that uh, is, is conscious for me. I want there to be a balance. Now, uh, I haven't done the math in a while. I, you know, it's, I think it's fairly close to 50, 50 in the history of the show. We're at what, like 448 episodes now. Uh, I'd have to go through and do the math, but it's probably, uh, a bit more women than men and which is totally fine with me. I don't know that there are more women writing fiction. I'm not aware of, uh, I don't have the market research on that. I do know that there are more female readers of literary fiction out there and more, I think more women read books period. But, um, you know, I think part of it is a conscious effort to make sure that there is a uh, gender equity in terms of, uh, who's on the program as, as a guest. And, uh, also I just like women. This is something about me. I enjoy the company of women. I prefer it to the company of men generally. And I think that might be a byproduct of growing up with sisters. I have two sisters kind of grew up in a house full of women, grew up watching soap operas hanging out with women. That was my childhood. Days of our lives, another world, Santa Barbara, General Hospital. All my children. Did I say that already? Days of our lives in particular. Bowen Hope, Stefano Demera, Roman, Marlena. I know all that shit. But, you know, if you see me at a party... Not that I go to a lot of parties, but like back in the day, you know, in my more uh, social years, my youth, uh, like all the guys are in the, uh, in one room and all the, you know, if all the women are in the other, I'm kind of hanging out with the women or I wish it, or I wish that I was, I like women genuinely. I like their company. So that might be part of it, but I think it's also just, uh, the way it should be. Right. No one wants to hear me just talking to a bunch of guys. So thanks, Greg, for uh, listening and for writing in. Uh, this next letter comes from a listener named Pete who says, uh, Hi, Brad, just wanted to give you props for having the Oracle of Los Angeles on the program. My wife and I are witches, study the art of magic, uh, magic, meditation, and how everything that the Oracle talked about on her program is what we provide Seattle. It's awesome that you extended her the invitation. As a writer, I use the magic to tap into writing and how it can provide the essence of inspiration and creativity to create a story. The aspects of being present, connected, etc., are all part of a new consciousness that is emerging in popular culture that I embrace. And it is validating to see you have her on and hold space for and hold a container for this dialogue. Yours truly, Pete. So uh, for those of you uh, listening who might not be aware, I had the Oracle of Los Angeles on the program just a, you know, a couple of weeks ago before the turn of the new year. She's a local uh, oracle here in LA and she's a witch. She does uh, healing. She does like uh, therapeutic work. She does the tarot, the cards. This is a world that's uh, pretty unfamiliar to me, to be honest with you, which is part of the reason I wanted to have her on. I mean, at 448 episodes, it's time to have a witch on the program. That's my feeling. I think, and, and along those lines, I should tell you guys, you know, I've had, uh, I've been toying with this idea and talking about it a bit in recent episodes and it's, it's really coming together. I have all the equipment now to go mobile. Like I really can go mobile at any moment <laughs> could leave my garage and, uh, be at large with recording equipment. I got to get over my self-consciousness a little bit. I'm working on my pitch to complete strangers. 
I don't want to freak people out. I'm a little worried about that. Showing up with a microphone, sticking it in their face, starting, you know, starting to ask them questions. There's a certain intimacy that happens when you're in uh, a garage or some sort of uh, confined space. You know, you know, the person coming over knows what they're getting into. It's just the two of you. You're not in public. So I've got to sort of refine my thoughts on how that's going to work. But I'm equipped now. I'm dangerous. Finally, a letter from uh, Dmitry Samarov, a longtime listener of this program and also a past guest. He says, hey, Brad, I've been on the dumb phone diet for a year and a half, and I think it has helped save my sanity, especially with the political events of the last year. I've also saved a ton of money. Uh, I got this Swiss designer made phone a couple of months ago. The only thing it does is talk and text, no camera, no music player, no apps. It's basically a well-designed version of one of those senior citizen jobs. It's perfect. You will discover that there are many, many more hours each and every day. Once you don't spend it staring into screens, congrats and best of luck in the coming year. Signed Dimitri. So see, I, I, I started, uh, I, I basically lobotomized my phone, which I talked about last week and it's been going great. I haven't missed it. I'm glad I did it. I need a break. And it's a little bit, you know, I, I feel like I'm contradicting myself somewhat. I feel like in the aftermath of the election, I was in this mood to stay hyper-informed. And it's not that I've, I'm, I've lost my fighting spirit, but it's like, I think uh, it gets counterproductive at a certain point, this hyper-information, this constant checking, this constant like anxiety, reading shit, getting pissed off. Needed a break. Now, as far as this, like this Swiss designer made dumb phone goes, I can't do it. I have kids. I need the, I need the camera. That's the one thing that'll keep me tethered to a smartphone is having access to a good camera. Cause that's really my only camera. I'm not one of these dads who's carrying around a large camera. I, I actually have one, never use it. It's too much work. It's too heavy. So, and you know, the cameras on phones, they're good enough. <laughs> I don't even know how to keep track of all these photos. Like these parents who like have like high, you know, they're very organized. They have like photo albums and stuff. I've, I've got basically like, uh, you know, 75,000 photos in a Dropbox, completely disorganized. I'm just going to give my kids the password and my will. <laughs> Here's your life. Have fun sifting through it. You know how people do it. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Uh, should we get to the program? Let's get to the program. Roxanne Gay is my guest. Uh, very happy to have her here. Her new story collection is called Difficult Women, available now from Grove Press, just released to critical acclaim. Here she is, folks. This is Roxanne Gay. I was definitely thinking of it in terms of doing something kind of tongue-in-cheek, much in the way I did with Bad Feminist. And I was thinking about how there are so many reasons why a woman is called difficult, whether it's because she dares to want something, dares to ask for something, uh, dares to speak up for herself, uh, you know, does anything but shut up and look pretty. Uh, All of a sudden, a woman becomes difficult and overly demanding and a nag. And so... I wanted to write a collection of stories about women who are human and who behave in imperfect ways and who face some really difficult situations and, uh, you know, like just explore their lives. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny you you say that and it makes me think of, uh, I guess, in the context of politics, but there's a a variety of contexts where this happens, where there are certain adjectives uh, applied to women which can set off alarm bells. Like when a woman is emotional, uh, Uh moody, or, you know, you saw this with Hillary Clinton, you know, I think you see, you see that a lot when it comes to women in positions of power, where I feel like there's a different set of standards applied or uh, a different set of descriptors used depending on what the situation is. Absolutely. And it's really uncomfortable. And I, I think we have to, you know, look at that and interrogate that it's, important to do so. And so, and so uh, like, what about the men in difficult women and the men and men, I guess in, in the, the greater scheme of things with regard to your work, but also in the greater scheme of things, period. Uh, it seems like men are the real difficult ones. They are. And it's interesting. Uh, I've been doing a lot of press this week and I've gotten so many questions about the men, which I think is really interesting. Uh, but the men, not, I mean, there are a range of men in the book, just as, a, just as there are a range of men in the world. And oftentimes these women become difficult because of the difficult men in their lives <laughs> and the difficulties the men put them through. Yeah, but like, and, and what about men? Yeah, I feel, because I feel like as a man, um, you know, it's hard to talk about because I don't, I don't want to misspeak or make myself the victim, you know, because... That's not the way that it should be. But I, I, I guess I just feel that, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it can be sort of embarrassing to be a man sometimes. And then at the other, at, at the same time, I can also find myself thinking like, well, we're not all bad. Sometimes I feel like the, the portrayals of men can be too sweepingly negative. Uh, mm-hmm. like, like, what do you think about that? Oh, you know, I think it's time to break out the world's smallest violin. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, I mean, you're a white man. You're attractive. You, have, you think I'm attractive? You, you. you think I'm attractive? 
Oh, I think you're mega hot. That's why I call you Mr. California to, uh, to my friends that know you. That's so, it's very generous. Oh, it's also very true. I can't stand it. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I do think that I understand sort of the kind of white man's burden that a lot of men feel like where they feel compelled to say not all men. I get where they're coming from. But at the same time, when you look at the world and the state of the world, and you look at the news and the things that men do, it's like, you guys aren't helping yourselves. No. And no, it's not all men by any stretch of the imagination, but it's enough men that we have to have these conversations. Yeah. Do you, li- uh, do you like men? Yeah, of course I do. You I do. adore men. Yeah. I do. Um, I have no problem with men. And I actually, all the men in my life are wonderful. My friends, my family. And I, I think it's, because I know good men that I'm able to explore the men who aren't good. And also because I live in the world, I encounter bad men all the time, especially because I'm a woman with opinions. Well, yeah. And I want to talk, so, I want to talk a yeah. bit about this because I think this extends to uh, other aspects of life uh, broadly, mm-hmm. but also your life. And, you know, I've been doing a lot of thinking about you. The last time that we spoke, on this program was just over four years ago when IET was coming out, your debut collection, um, on a small press. And a lot has changed for you in four years, like spectacularly so. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's been incredible to watch. I'm really happy for all the success that you've been having. And, uh, you know, I, I get into conversations with people about your career. I hear people talking, um, you know, you're a writer who has succeeded in ways that a lot of writers, wish to succeed in. And, uh, I think about the enormous amount of, uh, work that you've gotten done, how prolific you are. I also think of how many different experiences you are able to speak about with authority. Uh, -hmm. and I'm just going to start like ticking some off, uh, gender, race, sexuality, sexual violence, um, Uh, food and body issues, uh, the immigrant experience, like just to name a few, but they're all big Mm -hmm. in and of themselves. And you, um, you know, obviously all of these things are a part of your personal life and your personal identity and who you are, but as a professional, uh, writer, like how conscious of this are you, uh, like, do you, have you ever sat back and thought to yourself, my God, like I have a lot to talk about. You know, not really, because I'm generally focused on what's right in front of me and what's consuming me in a given moment. And, you know, the reality is that I exist at the intersection of a lot of interesting places. You know, as you pointed out, I'm the daughter of immigrants. Uh, So I grew up Haitian-American and I grew up black in America. And, um, I'm a woman and uh, I am bisexual and I have an, I, you know, I'm overweight so I can talk about body issues. I mean, of course, anyone can talk about body issues, Yeah, I'll talk about uh, but, uh, I have just a lot of, because of my identity, I have a lot of different experiences and those inform me how I see the world, how I move through the world. And so that shows up in my writing. And uh, it, ma- guess, it makes it makes it unique. I mean, uh, yeah. it makes it unique. Like you're an avatar for a lot of stuff that really matters to people and a lot of different kinds 
of uh, challenges that people face or, you know, difficult experiences that people have. And it, it really is unique. I think because I just me sitting here thinking about uh, the appeal of your work and how it has found such a broad audience, like you're speaking to a lot of people about a lot of really big things with authority. And it's just rare that I think somebody has that, uh, you know, has that ability as a writer, period, but also has that set of experiences. Yeah, it's um, interesting. It's in in the past couple of years, I've really had the opportunity to reflect on just the range of things that I get to write about and that I feel confident writing about. Certainly, there are many things that I do not feel confident writing about. And people often ask me, you know, I don't feel entirely comfortable writing about international affairs, for example. A lot of times people will say, why aren't you writing about Syria? Uh, because I don't know anything about it. I mean, I do, but I know enough to know that I shouldn't be writing about it. Uh, and so I look to others, and so I read instead of writing. I don't feel compelled to speak on absolutely everything because I want the things that I say to matter and to mean something, and I want to feel adequately informed before I, I you know, I share Here's my opinion. Do you have like an evidence? Uh, do you have like a procedure like or some sort of like, how do you know when you are adequately, adequately prepared? It's just an intuition. Like you've read enough. You feel, you know, like you're, you're filled with enough um, reading that you can speak or, or yeah, personal I mean, experience. It, exactly. It's, it's really intuition and common sense. Uh, you know, the reality, you know, when you get a PhD, you read a lot, you go all the way through, you know, and so I think back to, as cheesy as it sounds, I do think about the course material and the things that I studied um, in my uh, master's and PhD programs. And I think about the reading that I've done in the years since and the exposure I've had to various experiences. And I think about my own experiences. And that's how I make decisions as to whether or not I can speak on something. And uh, when I can't, I'm very comfortable saying I can't. Because I don't want to, you can't be everything to everyone. And I don't want to just blindly speak to everything. Um, but I think, I think I mean, that would dilute what I have to say. I, I don't disagree. But what I would, what I would say is that um, that's admirable humility. But at the same time, I think uh, what I was getting at earlier is that you are speaking um, well about more things than most. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you, you yeah, have... I do. I do. Um, and that's, uh, you know, I, I think part of that confidence to speak on those things is just forced, you know, is just forcing myself to believe, you know what, your opinion is as valid as any, because I look at some of the like famous pundits and they just talk about anything at right. all times. Right. And so I just try to channel some of that. Like, okay, you feel like you can go on national television and run your mouth about this thing you know nothing about? I know something about it. So, yeah, maybe I will throw my hat in this ring. Do you do a and lot so of... I really just try to, can, you know, channel the confidence of do, others. Do you do uh, a lot of research? Like, but like if, if you're going to tackle something in like an op-ed or... Like, what does your process look like when you are going to make a public statement about, say... Bill Cosby, or you're going to make a public mm -hmm. statement about, um, is it Nate Parker? Am I, am I remembering? Yes. That? Yeah. So, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, I've read your, your essays for years and I'm always curious, like, what does it look like for you when you're, you know, formulating your thoughts and putting something like that together? There's definitely an emotional core, uh, something that triggers something in me where I just like 
furious or heartbroken or overwhelmed and I need to say something. So it definitely starts from a place of emotion. Uh, and then I start to think, okay, what do I need to say to make sure that the reader has the necessary information to form their own opinion about this topic? Uh, and so I absolutely do research. And because I'm new to nonfiction, relatively speaking, I, you know, a lot of my earlier work did not have a lot of research behind it uh, because I just had a thought and an opinion and someone was like, write about it. And so I did. Um, but definitely, as I try to become a better nonfiction writer, I am incorporating more research uh, because I think that you're like, oh, you're like, oh shit, the... people are actually reading this. I better, well, better know what it's... <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, I just recognize that facts matter. Yeah. And especially now with all of this fake news and people that are not really well informed, like uh, Trump voters who are like, I don't want to get rid of. I thought we were getting rid of Obamacare, not the Affordable Care Act. Like there, there are people who don't realize that they're the same thing. Yeah. I, you know, I certainly don't want my readers to to ever end up that uninformed, and I don't want to be that uninformed. And so, research is absolutely a part of my process. So, and so I look at the research and then I decide what pieces of that information I need to include in an essay. And so, the you know, you go out and publish your opinion. Um, you know, in a variety of places, New York Times, The Guardian, wherever it might happen to be. And when, whenever someone does that, you're opening yourself up to criticism. But maybe it's because uh, I've known you for a, wh a while and uh, I've been following you on social media for a while. But you seem to attract some pretty nasty people who you will then sometimes at least engage with. Like, can you talk a little bit about like why you do that and... Mm -hmm how it affects you? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know why, but I attract a very virulent brand of hater and 97% of those haters are men. And take that as you will, it's just a fact. And um, I used to, you know, people always say ignore it, brush it off, but I don't think people realize the extent of the problem. I think people think it's just Twitter but it's not. It's Twitter. It's Facebook. They try to get my Facebook account deactivated. Um, they send me crazy emails. They call my job, my day job, and they try to get me fired. And they send me crazy hate-filled letters at my day job because I teach at a state university. So uh, my contact information is public record for um, my campus address. And so... I, I engage on Twitter to just bring visibility to the realities that writers, and especially women writers and people of color who write, face. That it's not just disagreement. Disagree with me all you want and engage with me critically. That's fine. And, and, you know, I may not love it because, you know, I'm human, but it's totally fine. But the stuff that I can't stand is the hatred and the death threats and the innumerable insults about my appearance. Like, I know what I look like. You don't have to remind me. Thank you. Do you ever, um, do you ever, are you ever afraid? Do, do you ever, do you ever fear for your safety? Absolutely. I used to never be afraid, but now every time I go on stage, I just wonder if someone's going to shoot me. And <sighs> that's horrible. It's horrible to live like that, but I still do my events because I mean, what am I going to do? Stay home all day? Um, right. But it's definitely scary. There's definitely a guy who lives 45 minutes from me 
who uh, I have blocked, and he got very angry that I blocked him on Twitter. And so he started calling my boss and leaving these long, rambling messages and talking to her. And so campus security knows, which is great. Um, but I, I, And he has lots of guns. And so I always worry that he's going to show up uh, when I'm teaching someday. Um, and that's not pleasant to live with. No. Uh, what is yeah, it? So what is it? What, I mean, yeah. So you, you have a lot of insight. I, I, I would suppose into, or at least you have a lot of contact with people who are very upset and have a lot of anger, mostly mm-hmm. men, almost all men. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, like I think when I, when I ponder social media and, uh, I guess Twitter in particular where people feel, uh, but I guess all social media, like you're saying, people feel more at liberty to uh, vocalize insults and use uh, hateful language and attack people. It makes me wonder when I'm out in the in the the actual world, when I'm looking around at people on the street, like like what is roiling beneath the surface in most people? Like, because there's a lot of people on social media who are just abominable, you know, like how many, like what what are the actual numbers? Have you learned anything? Do you feel like you've learned anything from engaging with these people? Oh, no, I do. Well, I mean, I've learned just how much hatred there is in this world. I think that most of the people who engage in hatred and on social media are are impotent in their actual lives. Um, They're suffering from unfulfilled entitlement and this is a safe, what they consider to be a safe way to release their aggression that they can't release in real life without committing a crime. And I guess that's supposed to be a comfort, but I don't take any comfort in that. I I think that it's pathetic that this is the best way that these people can vent their frustrations rather than, say, writing an essay or reading a book or going for a walk. Um, I I haven't, you know, there's nothing to learn. And when I engage, it's not really engagement. It's more just highlighting, hey, this terrible thing is happening and I'm not going to be silent about it. There's no engaging with these people. They're not really interested in discourse or discussion. They disagree. They disagree because of whatever reason they disagree. Um, but they're not interested in engagement at all. They just want to put me in my place. Have you, like, ever, have you ever had somebody yeah. engage with you in that way who then over time may have actually read one of your books or came around and said, hey, you know what? I was wrong. Has that ever happened? Not that I know of, no. Damn. I was hoping for at least one. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> Too optimistic. I mean, I do think that there are people who I've disagreed with, and we've had really good discussions about that disagreement, but the people who are hate-filled, no, they don't. A lot of times they don't even know who I am. Like uh, yesterday, <laughs> I was on NPR, and I, I said, there are more bad men than good. But... And I didn't even bother bother to clarify this on Twitter. I was actually just talking about my book. I wasn't talking about the world. Um, I don't think that there are mad, more bad men than good in the world. It was in my book. And I had also, uh, this part didn't make it into the interview, but I had been talking about uh, some of the good men in the book and the good men in my life. Uh, and the interview aired at like 4.40 and ended at 4.46. And at 4.47... 
I had two emails from men yelling at me for saying that there are more bad men than good in the world. These are not people who are interested in engaging. Uh, they didn't use common sense to consider the context of the book, which is what we were talking about. And so I know that there's no reaching them. Well, and who's got time for this? Like, what are these people doing? They got time to sit around emailing angry missives to strangers, you know, and tweeting hateful things that, you know, I don't get it. I don't get the, I don't get the free time of the trolls. I don't either. Like, how did they find my Facebook page that fast? <laughs> like, I, I can't do anything that quickly. Like, it's amazing in yeah. some ways. Like, if you took that energy and applied it to your hobby or your passion, you would become really, really successful. It, it, <laughs> it's mind-blowing. Like, yesterday was really mind-blowing. I just was like, what? I mean, first of all, it's NPR. So, it, And it was a, a lovely interview with um, Audie Cornish. And I just thought, huh. Of all the things that I've said and done, I didn't think that this was going to be like the pot boiler and yet. But, you know, I think, too, though, you know, you talk about these as individual cases and, you know, random people like tracking down your Facebook in information. But the truth is that you're becoming a public figure and people know who you are, um, you know, in a, in a broader way than you might even understand you know like things are happening for you pretty fast and i think your name is out there and you know you're very prolific you publish a lot in a lot of different places and um you know i think people might be reacting to you uh, in part because of that like reflexively you know like the way that public figures often get reacted to yeah i'm sure that's part of it i, I you know i'm still working on accepting that i mean i'm not in denial i know how many books i've sold and, um, how many books have you sold? Will you tell me? Uh, I think 160,000 copies of Bad Feminist. Wow. Um, which is, I feel very happy about that number. Yeah. Um, maybe more. Uh, so I know that the book is really out there and I know that my book, my writing at The Guardian and, and now The New York Times is widely read. I didn't realize the reach of The New York Times until I started writing there. And yeah. then I was like, holy cow. Like, you know, they count page views in terms of hundreds of thousands and then millions, which I didn't know. And so I, I realized that my reach is growing and that my career is evolving. But it's hard to remember when I'm sitting, like, for example, right now in my apartment in... Lafayette, Indiana, and um, I just got back from the gym, and later I'm going to make a sandwich for dinner. Like, it's just, you know, right. life goes on. I live a very normal life until I don't. And so, yeah, I think people are in part reacting to, oh, here's a public figure, and they start to think that you're not human. Uh, and I think that there's also a group of people that just resent me for various reasons and they're entitled to that as well. And then there are just the people who blindly hate and what they see as a fat black woman achieving success and that's not supposed to happen. And so they need to tear me down. Right. Well, I was going to say that kind of goes back to what I was talking about with you as an avatar for all these different things. And, and once people, mm -hmm. once people sort of associate you there, then they're just reacting against that for whatever reasons they may have, you know? Um, yes, absolutely. But you, you know, we we were talking a little bit about the evolution of your career, and I mentioned, um, you know, earlier about how 
you know, four years has gone by. It, it, it's gone by very quickly and, and so much has happened for you. Um, just to review, An, uh, An Untamed State, your debut novel, uh, came out from Grove, correct? Correct. And then it was Bad Feminist. Mm-hmm. And then it's like the New York Times and The Guardian. Mm-hmm. Um, now we have Difficult Women. Mm-hmm. We have World of Wakanda. Am I pronouncing that right? Yes, you are. So World of Wakanda is, you're the first black woman to write a uh, Marvel comic, correct? Yeah, I'm the first black woman to lead a Marvel title. And I didn't know that when I agreed to do the comic. And uh, it blows my mind because it was 2016. So I I would have assumed that this had been well-tread territory, but it hasn't been. And so that's really exciting. And also overwhelming because you know you just to be the first in 2016 is just so surprising and yet it's still happening and so with that came a lot of attention and i also didn't realize how many people read comic books it's a lot i mean do you read comic books i mean i guess you do now right when i was a kid i read archie comics religiously i loved them and the ongoing adventures of betty and veronica archie and jughead uh, but I wasn't really into superhero comics. And then when Tanahasi Coates wrote me and asked me um, if I'd be interested in a crazy idea, and I learned what the crazy idea was, I started to read comics to see what is happening in the genre today. And so it's been a lot of fun to explore this world. It's a big world. I mean, God, those Marvel movies and, and I mean, just comic books alone, but then you take the movie adaptations and everything, and it becomes. Uh, you know, it's one of the biggest media entities out there. Absolutely. You know, like I always joke, but it's also kind of true. The reason I said yes is because I would love to meet uh, the actor who plays Thor. (laughs) (laughs) Who is that? Who who plays Thor? Uh, Chris Hemsworth. And he's, oh my God, he's so fucking hot. I can't even (laughs) handle it. It's just so incredible. I just want to like stand next to him and just poke him a little bit somewhere and you know just admire him yes. and his many talents so let's say wait let's say this happens let's say this happens you actually are in the yes. room with this guy could you handle yourself in his presence oh of course of course you could uh but i would be very happy <laughs> you wouldn't get shy would like just, would you would you would you uh become inward and quiet or would you be able to talk that's a good question i'm not sure i would probably be somewhere in the middle i wouldn't be a freak about it, but I wouldn't be like all up in his face either because I, I do respect boundaries and I would be just overwhelmed by his beauty. He's <laughs> so attractive. It would be the same thing with my boyfriend Channing. I was going to say, be, mm, I feel mm, like, I feel like that's, I feel like that's going to happen. I feel like you and Channing Tatum are destined to meet at some point. That's got to happen. I feel like we are. I really do. I think that we're going to meet and we're going to be really good friends and He's just so handsome. You gotta, oh, you gotta write him in. Write him into Wakanda. Get him in there somehow. Oh, I don't, I'm trying to write him into my movie. <laughs> he would be great as Michael, and and uh, I don't think I'm going to get my way on this regard, but that's okay. But wait, you so okay? So we were going over this just a second ago. Untamed State, mm-hmm. Bad Feminist, Difficult Women, World of Wakanda, New York Times, The Guardian. Um, there's a book called Hunger. Uh, which is yeah. a nonfiction book about like food and body stuff, which was supposed to come out and then got delayed. Is that correct? That is correct. Well, why did it get delayed? You just were just wanted to do some more work on it. 
Well, there are only so many hours in the day. I've actually been on the road nonstop since May 2014, which has made writing time precious. But more than that, Hunger is a very personal book. It's a memoir of my body. And so I dragged my heels for a really long time. And I've struggled with the amount of vulnerability I've put into this book and a lot of fear about putting this book out into the world and sort of facing myself on the page. And so definitely, you know, the delay just comes from being human and being afraid. Uh, But it will be out in June 2017. It's painful to write uh, really deep personal stuff about painful parts of your life. (laughs) It really is. Which I guess like most people who are writing about personal stuff, it's usually about something that was painful or dramatic or meaningful. But um, I know this, you know, from my own experience, like, God, it just guts you. It's, it's really, really, really hard. And, uh, I, it's understandable to me that it would go slow. Like, did you, did you ever think about scrapping it? Yeah, I did. And I was, you know, my mom has certainly, she keeps asking me, you know, like, why am I putting myself through this? And, uh, you know, that's a really good question. And I thought long and hard about like, do I just pay the advance back? I mean, I've only received a part of it, and so I could. But this book does feel necessary. And so many women have come up to me talking about how much they're looking forward to the book. And I don't say that in a a weird flattery way, but they're looking forward to the book because they want to see someone talking openly about weight um, without having achieved triumph. Because so many weight loss memoirs are about the triumph of losing 200 pounds or whatever. And that's not the book I wrote. And so uh, I know that this is a book that I need to put out. Uh, but I'm a very private person, despite what people may assume. So it's just, it's a, it's a struggle. And it's also just hard to, like, really be honest with myself and just be honest about my shit and just, Oh my God, Roxanne, you're 42. What the fuck? Well, isn't it funny though? Cause like you could sit down to write, you're, uh, you're an adult, you know, like you said, you're mm-hmm. 40, 42 years old. You've published some books. You've had some professional success. You got your PhD. Uh, and then you sit down to just try to be honest about what's going on in a certain part of your life or, uh, write it honestly. And you can lie to yourself right there on the page or at least avoid, you know, it's like, yeah, you it, can, you can. And so I've been trying very hard to not lie to myself, to just be honest. And that's hard. Do, do you, I will say that is hard. Do you have uh, like a first reader or somebody to whom you feel like you're always writing? Uh, like what, like who, who helps you figure out whether or not you are being honest or is it just you? Um, I do have a first reader and someone I, I trust with my work before I send it out into the world. Uh, my best friend. And... Um, Yes. So that always helps. And just as a sounding board. And sometimes it's just a look at what I did. And sometimes it's give me your thoughts. Um, is, does this work? So, yes, I absolutely do have a first reader. Okay. And, and um, you know, you spoke earlier about a screenplay in Channing Tatum. So that is in addition to World of Wakanda. Like you also have just written a feature screenplay? Yeah, um, An Untamed State was optioned by uh, Fox Searchlight. Oh, right. And so I am writing, well, I wrote the screenplay uh, for the 
movie adaptation, and the director has it now and is going to share her thoughts with me. Who's the director? And then we're going to submit it to the studio and move forward. Do you mind saying who the director is? Yes, the director, and she's going to be the co-writer, um, is Gina Prince-Bythewood. Okay. I'm trying to, I'm trying to place her. I'm, I'm not the best at this, but has she, has she directed uh, any other she films? She did Love and Basketball, ah. The Secret Life of Bees, and uh, Beyond the Lights. Okay. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Um, so, I get, and that, that's pretty much it. <laughs> Right, we're not. Yeah, missing. you know, that's it. Whatever. Okay. So that's it. That's all. That's all you've done. Whatever. Yeah, uh, no big deal. Just a few things, a handful. In in four years. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, no, I would say this is the work I've been doing over the past seven years. Di- um, Difficult Women, for example, is the very first book I ever tried to sell. It just took this long for someone to buy it and publish it. Ah. And so most of the stories in Difficult Women were written in 2009 and 2010. And then I wrote An Untamed State in the summer of 2011. And I wrote the essays in Bad Feminist between 2010 and 2012. Okay. So you wrote All of Untamed Untamed State in a summer? Yes. I wrote it in a summer, in four months. Okay. Jesus Christ. So... I want to ask you, uh, because I think a lot of people listening want to hear in, in detail, like how, how all this happened for you and how you work mm-hmm. to, you know, how you work to make it happen. Um, yeah. I think, I think where I would start is to say like, what does your typical day look like work-wise? Oh, work-wise? My, I don't have a typical day because I'm so often on the road and now I split my time between Indiana and L.A., so I generally wake up and I read a little bit just to immerse myself in someone else's words. And then I do what I need to do, like just in terms of my own life, errands, whatever. Uh, I go to the airport and I try to work or read on the airplane to wherever I'm going. And then I do an event in the evenings. And then when I go back to my hotel room after my event is generally when I get my writing done. So are you, uh, are, you, in, in, are you typically oh, a night, ahead. are you typically like a, a night writer? Like you like to write after I'm a night writer. Okay. You I s- can write any time of day, but I'm happiest writing once the sun goes down and I don't know why, but I like it to be dark outside. So tonight, for example, I'll probably start writing around nine o'clock. Um, and you'll go for how long? Um, I'll probably write till one. So yeah, just but like a four hour because that's the thing about it is that like the talk to a lot of people obviously and it seems like a you know four or five hours in in terms of like really immersive creative work that's about it I mean to to go longer than that is unusual I think people I guess people can do it but to to write in like an eight or ten hour burst like really to be you know really locked in that doesn't seem like most people can do that. Yeah, when I wrote my novel, that's how I did it. I wrote for about ten to eleven hours a day. Every day. I just, my novel was the only thing. And so I don't know that I would do it again, but it got the job done. And it made the novel exactly what I wanted it to be, which is to be a really all-encompassing, almost claustrophobic reading experience, because that was the writing experience. But I find, like, as you say, like, four-hour bursts to be, like, the right amount of time. 
Uh, and then I know that whatever is going to come next, it's like if I write into that fifth or sixth hour, the prose just isn't as good or as fresh or as sharp. And so I do something else. Like what? Well, you know, I have a day job. So if I'm teaching, you know, grading, class prep, email has become a burden. <laughs> so many emails, interviews, um, you know, there are just a lot of different things. Writing is the best part of being a writer, but when you achieve a, a, a certain amount of success, there become, there comes a whole new set of jobs that have nothing to do with writing. Well, and, I, yeah, I mean, so, I want to yeah, I I I talk to you about that because, you know, the I, I think about this a lot because I'm spread thin, probably not as spread thin as you are with all that you have going on, but the kind of work that is required of people who write books is hyper-focused, immersive blocks of time. Like it requires that. And yeah. if you have a really variable schedule and you're traveling a lot and it's hectic and you have speaking engagements and readings and you're appearing uh, on the radio and on podcasts and you're answering emails and you have a day job, it's like you have to really fight for that time. You have to find that yeah. four hours. Like do you... Do you find yourself turning down lots of social obligations or invitations? Like, do you draw the line with people? You know what I'm saying? Do people know not to bother you? Do you are you have you gotten good at saying no? No, I haven't. That's my one of my biggest problems is that I don't say no enough. Um, now, you know, I don't get a lot of. I don't live in a city, so I don't have to deal with a lot of the social pressures of like going to parties. And quite frankly, I would ignore those pressures. Like. A lot of my New York writer friends seem to constantly be going to literary events, and that just seems like a special brand of hell to me. Yeah. Um, I don't like small talk. I don't like strangers, uh, which is not to say that I can't socialize. I can, and I do, and I enjoy it, and then I enjoy going home. <laughs> and so I, I would never want to have to be on a social circuit like that. It's too much. Yeah, it's exhausting. Um, it is. Even when I do events, I ask my agents to, like, try and get me out of any sort of mandatory fun. I don't want to go to a reception, <laughs> which sounds horrible. But, you know, when you have to be on stage and then do an hour or two of book signing, the last thing you want to do is go to a reception before or after. It's just so time-consuming and so energy-consuming. Yeah. Um, but I need to learn more to say no. Um, I'm just not good at it. I always feel like, I'm not good enough. And so I should be lucky to have anything. And so I have to say yes to everything because who knows when this is going to end. Well, right. I was just going to say like, you know, you have all these great opportunities coming at you. It is hard to say no. I mean, for God's sake, you, you have a lot of, um, you have a lot of good things happening. And so it's weird to, to have to start to prioritize those things and be willing to say no to good stuff. Yeah. You know, like with Marvel, it was like, how on earth do I say no to Marvel? I mean, come on. Um, and how do you say no to a movie? How do you say no to a TV show? You, you know, it's, these are things that I would love to do. And so I, I can't say no, but, uh, you know, especially in the past two months, I've had to start to say no to very exciting opportunities, uh, simply because it's just not feasible. I can only be in one place at a time. So do you, and at some oh. point I have to like, you know, think about myself, I guess. 
Well, yeah, you, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna burn yourself out. You're gonna you're gonna uh, collapse. You know, you gotta make sure yeah. you get some rest because that's kind of my next question. Is that like, you know, if, if Roxanne Gay is able to produce the way that you've been able to produce in basically, uh, I guess, uh, accepting the composition of an untamed state, you know, four hour blocks of time. That's basically how mm -hmm. you're doing your work on a daily basis creatively, uh, like the most important work of your life. Um, mm -hmm. Do you write really quickly? Yes, I'm a very fast writer because I do a lot of drafting in my head before I put pen to paper. Oh, I use a computer. I don't write by hand, but proverbially. Uh, so I'll think about a story or an essay or a chapter in my head for days or weeks and just sort of work it through. And then I sit down and it comes out very quickly. And so I do write quickly. Like how many pages or do you do word counts or anything like that? Do you have an idea of what you usually crank out in four hours? Uh, not really, but in four hours, I probably can write about, I don't know, seven to 8,000 words. Oh my God. That's good. <laughs> That's a lot. Oh, is it? Well, yeah, I, yeah, it is a lot, of course. But I can also write a hundred words in four hours if it's not coming. Okay. You know what I mean? You're making me feel better. So there that you would go. be a very good day. Um, there are certainly days where I, I get, you know, a thousand words, 400 words, a hundred words out in four hours. And I just think, well, you know what? This isn't, this isn't any good. Let's try again tomorrow. Okay. And then, uh, do you sleep? What? What? I don't, I don't know what sleep is. Sorry. Uh, honestly, like what, what is your sleep schedule? You get in how many hours a night do you usually get? Uh, I get about six hours. Well, that's not, I, I was thinking it was going to be worse than that. Six hours is like, I can understand how you're like ambulatory and functional. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I am an insomniac, but actually for the past, I don't know, six months I've been sleeping pretty well and I'm not sure why, but, um, I think it's because I take a Benadryl every night. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do it. Yes, it will. Oh my God. It's my favorite time of day is Benadryl time. And I know that sounds, it makes it sound like a drug addict and maybe I am. I'm, fine with it. I love Benadryl time because I know that 10 minutes later I will be dead to the world. What is it? A pill or uh, is it a liquid? You take like a shot of this stuff? I take a pill, okay. just like over the counter allergy pill. Gotcha. And it, it definitely helps. And sometimes it doesn't work and that's horrible. But one of the reasons I am so prolific is because when I have insomnia, I have a lot of free time. And so I just like write or read during that free time because laying in bed staring at the ceiling is not going to accomplish anything. No. And do you write every day? I, yeah, I do. But I don't, I don't do the four-hour block every day. That, that's just not going to happen. Um, so I would say I write. I definitely have a good half an hour of writing every day. And I try to write in those four-hour blocks at least three days a week. Wow. And then what about caffeine? Are you, like you, are you big on caffeine or are you, are you, mm. are you juicing? Are you using performance enhancing drugs? <laughs> <laughs> no, I do drink a coffee from Starbucks, nonfat venti mocha. Okay. Um, vanilla mocha, actually like a little shot of sugar. And so I drink that sometimes I had one yesterday. I had one today. So I'm like wide awake right now. Why do you think, like, I'm curious too, because there are people out there who have published, multiple books over the past four years who have not had the success that you've had. Like, do you have any sense of your appeal or why things have broken for you the way that they have? No fucking idea. None. 
you know, I think that anytime a black person can string some words together, white people get very excited. They're like, oh, look. Um, I think that with Bad Feminist, I touched a nerve. Um, that there are a lot of women who have struggled with feminism because it feels like the bar for entry is so high. And so with Bad Feminist, I was able to make feminism feel more accessible to a wider range of women while also talking about the importance of intersectionality and just acknowledging that we're not just women, that we have, you know, other identities. And with An Untamed State, uh, I just, I love that book. I, no matter what people think, I love that book. Uh, it was the hardest because I'd never written a novel before and I didn't think I could do it. And so I'm very proud of it. And I think it was just a, a beautiful love story and this horrifying nightmare in the same book. And I think that also resonated with readers. Well, and uh, when, but, did you, when did you yeah. feel it? When did you feel it start to tip? Because, you know, those two books you know, those, so those two books sort of launched you, like, was there, a, was there a time, uh, like a moment or a period of time where you could sort of feel things, uh, really escalating for you? I think things really started to tip at the end of 2015 and the beginning of 2016, uh, because the books were still selling. In fact, the books sell are selling better now than they did when they came out. That's which a, is crazy. Well, but that, no, that's off. That's called word of mouth, you know, and it takes time. Yeah. It takes time for, you know, you got to seed the field and then let the seeds germinate and grow. And like, that's what happens when, um, you know, people really respond to a work and want to share it with friends. Like they, they give it to the friend, but the friend might take a month to read it or six months, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Word of mouth has been one of the biggest things. And I also think the relentless touring has helped because a lot of people have been able to come and see me. And, uh, you know, I think I'm a pretty cool person. <laughs> like, I'm fun. I'm warm. And people expect feminists to be a specific way. Like, they have a very specific caricature of feminism and feminists. Like the bra-burning, so, you know, like yeah, angry woman or whatever. Correct. Like, angry, humorless, sex-hating woman. And when they see me and see that I'm warm and a little funny and kind they're they're very like oh oh and so um people like to come to my events because they're fun they're not boring and in general i feel i'm pretty nice on social media and it's funny because anytime i'm not nice lord knows i hear about it <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I also think, you know, that personality has something to do with it. Well, um, not every writer wants, I, I, I'm very shy. I, this side of my personality has surprised me. I didn't know it was sort of working in there. Um, this ability to be human and engage socially um, could have shocked the shit out of me if you had asked me five years ago. Uh, but I think that's part of why the books have done so well. So when you talk about touring and you talk about like the kind of the, it's like the never ending tour of Roxanne Gay starting back in 2014 or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. And you talk about the success of uh, Untamed State and Bad Feminist and now Difficult Women. Uh, is there a, a plan or a strategy that you concocted like consciously, like I'm going to tour relentlessly or I'm going to do X uh, for publicity, like how involved are you in the marketing and publicizing of yourself and your work? 
I'm very involved in terms of the touring. Uh, I work with my, I have speaking agents now, and so I work with um, uh, Kevin and Trinity, and I, so I make very careful decisions about where I'm going to go and when. And in terms of, you know, everything else, I don't think that much about publicity. I, I just don't. I'm not ignorant of it, let me be clear, but I actually am very lucky. Uh, so luck has played a big part in this, too. I have really good publicists at Grove and HarperCollins, and not every book gets publicity. And what has been remarkable is that they've continued to publicize the books. And I will say, in particular, HarperCollins has gone to the mat for Bad Feminist. Tiny advance. But they spent a lot of money and energy on publicity. Like, I still have my, um, like, my publicist, Amanda, at HarperCollins, comes to every event that I do in New York and manages it um, two years after the book came out. It's crazy. That's because it's still and, selling. They got, they got, they got, a, uh, they got yeah, a winner. They have, I mean, yeah, they're not doing it out of the goodness of their hearts. They're doing it because I'm earning them money, and I'm aware of that. But... I know how lucky I am because I see so many good books that don't get publicity support. And I see writers who can't afford it paying five, ten thousand $10,000 for an independent publicist. And so um, in terms of like direct publicity, I have to thank my publicists who have done the work. Um, the publicist for Bad Feminist, he's no longer at HarperCollins, but his name was Gregory Henry. And he just got the book in front of everybody. It was really interesting. And John Mark, who's my fiction publicist, has also gotten both Untamed State and now Difficult Women in front of a lot of editors and a lot of producers. And he has been very patient <laughs> with, like, I don't do television, uh, unless, of course, like, if the Today Show called, I would do that. But in general, I say no to TV. And Why? Um, because when I go on TV, people are mean to me. Hmm. And I mean, I know that sounds like I'm five, but you can only hear insults about how ugly you are so many times and how fat you are so many times before it's just not worth it. That's sad. For, you know, three minutes. Yeah, it is sad. I think that people are fucking horrible. And, you know, like when I find myself just wanting to die after going on CNN, I just realize, you know what, I don't have to do CNN. Like, I do not need this in my life. There's no amount of quote-unquote exposure that makes the backslash or the backlash worth it like what do you get it on social media like immediate like is that what you're dealing with mostly well yeah on social media and in emails like i was on cnn um i did a remote from boise idaho where i was giving a lecture and a woman emailed me and said uh whoever did that to your face should be shot but i hadn't i wasn't wearing makeup it was just my face and um, then people take pictures of me and screenshots of me and they'll put captions like the ugliest woman in the world and send it to me. And, you know, I'm human and it hurts. And so I just would rather not. I already think badly enough of myself. I don't need outside input into how bad I, you know, I feel about myself. That's uh, yeah, that's horrible. And I, I guess a question that rises in my mind is that, like, in dealing with all of this, uh, you seem pretty sunny, you know? Like, in talking to you and in, in being around you, 
uh, a handful of times, you know, I don't get the sense that you're uh, a dark soul, you know? Uh, and I'm, I'm, cu- I'm curious, like, how do you, how do you manage? Cause you, you deal with a lot of human awfulness. You see this, like, how do you not let those interactions and experiences color the other parts of your life? Do you know what I'm saying? Like how it can be overwhelming. Yeah. I would imagine. Like, do you ever get to a point where you just shut down or to say to hell absolutely. with people? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I go to it. I, I, there is a lot of darkness in my soul, but I keep it to myself. And also my best friend actually hears a lot and deals with a lot of it and helps me sort of just to be a sounding board. But uh, I try not to take it out with me because like, I I just, I'm a Libra, which sounds (laughs) hokey, but I am. And um, I'm very good at compartmentalizing. And so I take all the self-loathing and, lock it up when I need to like go and engage with the world. And then when I'm home alone and thinking, Oh my God, I'm going to die alone. Uh, <laughs> that's when I open up that compartment and just let that self-loathing out. And where, where does it go? Uh, and do you, does it go into, in. does it go into your writing or what do you do? Are you like drawing on the walls? Like what's happening? It goes into my writing. Um, it goes into my writing a lot. And it also just goes into just like sitting on my couch feeling sorry for myself, watching Law and Order SVU for eight hours in a row. <laughs> what do you what do you attribute um I guess your development as a writer to like how did like for people listening who might be saying like I wanna you know, I wanna do this, how did Roxanne get good? Uh I know that there are pretty simple answers. Uh basically read a lot and write a lot, but like how mm-hmm. how long did it take you to mentor uh, to um uh, apprentice how many uh, bad books do you have in the drawer? You know what I'm saying? Like, can you talk a little bit about uh, that part of your writing life? Yeah, sure. It took me um, it took me 15 years to get good. I, I've always written. I've written since I was four years old. I started to really take myself seriously when I was 16. And then um, I started to think I could send my work out into the world when I was 19. And it was such bad writing. I don't have any books in a drawer. Uh, I just don't. Um, But I have a lot of shitty, shitty pieces of writing that are in a graveyard on my hard drive. And so I just wrote and was rejected. And I wrote and I was rejected over and over again. And at that time, I was so lost in my own trauma and just so crazy that the rejection was just like, oh, okay, well, of course I got rejected because I'm me and I deserve this. And so I kept kept writing anyway because it was just like, yeah, of course I'm going to be rejected. Why would anyone like what I have to say? Um, But all the while I was becoming a stronger writer and I started to read what those rejection letters said when they had feedback and I started to read more um, of the writers that I admire and thought, okay, how do I make someone feel the way I feel after reading, for example, Zadie Smith's White Teeth? And what can I write that could make someone just feel like, oh, yes. And then when I was 34, I went to graduate school again to get my PhD, and I was living in Michigan's Upper Peninsula where there's nothing it's so remote and it's so far from anything. And 
I, I met my friend Matt Siegel, and we did Pank together. And we decided to start a blog for Pank. And so I would just write my dumbass opinions on this blog. And I started to, that's when I joined Twitter. And I, well, Twitter came a little later, but I started to engage with the internet and HTML giant. And I learned about the indie press community and all of these small, weird magazines where most of the stories in Difficult Women actually originally appeared. And so it was just slowly but surely and just being relentless and just being relentless. Well, it, no, it's funny like to hear you talk about, um, you know, your self-esteem or, or, you know, lack thereof earlier in your life mm-hmm. and in your career and how in a weird way that kind of served you. <laughs> like, I think maybe yeah. ri- writers with like bigger egos or higher opinions of themselves and their work might have been crushed or embittered by the rejection. But for you, it was like, exactly, this is supposed to happen. Okay, next, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, anytime I'm rejected, I mean, it hurts and I cry about it, but it's just like, oh, of course. Like, it's normal. Like, I feel like this is, this is the way it's supposed to be. When I have an acceptance, I'm like, now that's weird. <laughs> do, you, do you still get? Re- I don't trust that. Do you still get rejected? Oh yeah, of course I do. You do. Mm-hmm. Not as much as you used to, though. No, of course not. I, I don't submit as much as I used to, and um, I have some theories. But it it certainly the more success you achieve, the easier it is to get people to publish your work, <laughs> which is really fucked up. Uh, but I certainly get rejected. Like I would love to, my dreams are to be in the Paris review and the New Yorker and to, to write something worthy of that. I don't want to just be there. I want to just write something great like a, that like deserves a, to be in those publications. Like a personal, like for the New Yorker, like a personal history or a profile of somebody or something like that. Yeah, I would be happy to do that. Or I mean, my dream is to have a short story <laughs> in those magazines. Right. Uh, but in the New Yorker, I would do like a nonfiction piece too, like a research profile of someone. Sure. And I, I just really admire those publications a great deal. And I imagine, I imagine that, uh, as an, you know, as an outgrowth of the success you've been having and all the traveling you've been doing that you've probably gotten to meet a lot of people, including people you admire. Like, have you met any of your heroes? Have you had a chance to like be, uh, in contact with them personally and to get to meet them? Oh, yeah. I get to meet writers I love all the time. It's um, a great joy. And it's also intimidating. But Like, give me um, one. Give me an example of somebody you met who you just, like, sort of revered, and then suddenly you're, you're having coffee or sitting across with them. Uh, well, okay. It sounds cheesy, but I got to meet Maria from Sesame Street. <laughs> That's huge. We did an event together in New York a couple months ago, and she was luminous. And, you know, they say never meet your heroes, but she was luminous. It was such a pleasure. Well, we all grew up with her. We grew up with her, you know? Exactly. And to meet someone you grew up with, and she's this sassy woman in her, I think her 60s. And she looks gorgeous. And she was wearing these amazing heels that don't even have a heel they were like future heels, and she was walking around in them like they were fucking sneakers. It was awesome. And she read this really great essay um, from another per- 
what there were actors reading the writing of fiction writers and um amber tamblin actually read my story and it was just a delightful evening but to meet maria was just that was amazing have you ever met one of your heroes and been disappointed not that I, I mean I wouldn't ask you to I wouldn't ask you to out somebody unless you really want to but I'm sure like you know they they say never meet your heroes for a reason have you had experience have you had experiences like that where you're like oh wow you know like you're not nearly as cool as I thought you would be yeah I've only had that experience once I'm not going to name names but I did meet a writer and I love his work and I still love his work um, he's wonderful as a writer but I it was an awkward and uncomfortable in-person encounter. And I was just like, Oh, okay. Well, can't, well, you can't, you can't bat a thousand rocks in. I think having only one is pretty good. (laughs) Oh yeah. You know, it was definitely not, I mean, it's not something that I've even like dwelled on ever again. And I, I'm certain that people have met me and been like, Oh, that's her. Okay. Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, that's what I, that's I mean, what I always say to people who come over here for the for the show, like and meet me in person. I'm like, are you sure you want to do this? Like, you, you know. I... <laughs> <laughs> yes, it can be super uncomfortable, um, but I just have been able to do some really exciting things. So you know, as difficult as the harassment and whatever can be, I'm there's only a couple things in my life that I need to sort of have come together, and then everything will be really quite good professionally. I couldn't be happier. Um, or feel luckier. Yeah. Well, um, what's what's because this is success, you know. And uh, like, what's missing? Can you say? Is there anything missing? You said there's a couple things you want to have to come together. Like, um, what is that? For, it seems like you no, have it all. Definitely. I, you know, I want to lose weight. I just do, and you know, I struggle. I, I do. I don't feel like I have to qualify that. I mean, I think it's a natural thing. I just want to be more fit and stress less about my body in the world. And um, I want to settle down. Uh, I'm just, I want to settle down and not be in the Midwest anymore. And of course, settle down with someone. And so uh, once I get those things sorted out, I, you know, I'm sure there'll be something else that makes me miserable. We'll find you something else. We'll find you something else. You can oh, come. I have no doubt something else will crop up. They're like, Roxanne, don't even think of smiling. I have got some news for you. But uh, professionally, um, it's a dream. I'm living a dream. And how do you, how do you handle success? You know, because that's something people don't necessarily prepare for. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we always sort of get good at dealing with rejection or preparing, you know, preparing ourselves for disappointment or um, finding ways to pick ourselves up off the floor when things don't go our way. But then when suddenly things start rolling for you, like, have you had experiences where, uh, where like success has been difficult or where you found yourself saying, oh, God, this is harder than I thought it would be? You know, it's not harder than I thought it would be. The things I've struggled with are like people I thought were friends who have changed how they interact with me um, or who say things behind my back that trickle back to me. Would you um, like to, would you like to name names or? <laughs> no, I wouldn't. <laughs> I would not. <laughs> uh, that has been pretty hurtful and um, it, it's overwhelming. I'm still learning how to deal with it, but what I'm trying to do is enjoy it and not apologize because I've, I, while I've been lucky, I have worked my ass off. I have worked my ass to the fucking bone. And so uh, sometimes you work hard and it pays off. And 
all too often it doesn't, and I'm aware of that. And so I also try to just keep that in mind, and I try to share my bounty with the people I love most, and they're very stubborn about letting me do that. <clears throat> and then I, um, I try to make sure that a lot of times people are like, act like there can be only one successful black woman at a time. And so I also try to mentor and be inclusive of other women writers and especially other black women writers so that I'm not the last black woman writing at Marvel and I'm not the last black woman with a best-selling essay collection. And when I'm doing events and they ask who I'd like to be in conversation with, I try to always make sure it's a black woman or uh, a woman or a person of color. Um, so I try to do small things like that so that other people can enjoy this kind of success. Well, uh, I, c- I couldn't be happy for, or happier for you. I congratulate you on uh, Difficult Women and World of Wakanda, all that you have going on. Uh, I wish you well on the never-ending tour. I wish you uh, good <laughs> good sleep and uh, just just so much Benadryl in your life. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I just bought a new 48-pack. I'm very happy about it. You're all set. Well, it's great to talk with you, Roxanne. Best of luck on tour and with, uh, with all that you have going on. Thank you so much, Brad. I love talking to you. All right, folks, if you enjoyed this program, I hope you'll consider supporting it over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. You can make a donation on a monthly basis, help keep this thing going, help fund uh, field work. I can get on airplanes with my microphones. I can travel around. I can interview people. I can be on the ground. I can be at large foreign locations. Who knows what I could do with your support it would make the show interesting. If you would like to uh, support the program one more time, the address is patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you're destitute, if you have no money, if you're a wandering ascetic and you would like to support the program somehow, you can do that simply by writing a review over at iTunes. That helps. Be very much appreciated. It's a simple gesture. That was Roxanne Gay. Her new story collection is called Difficult Women. Wonderful talking with her. Her book is out there now from Grove Press. You can find her online at RoxanneGay.com. You can follow her on Twitter. Her handle is at rgay. She's on Facebook as well. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. Don't forget, this podcast has its own app, The Other People with Brad Listy app. Go to the app store of your choosing search for other people with brad listy get the app the app is free the most recent 50 episodes free it's the most uh, elegant it's the best way to listen to the program if you want access to the full archives uh 404 uh, 448 and counting at this point if you want access to everything anywhere you go at your fingertips you can sign up for a premium subscription so you get the most recent 50 for free and then if you want to go deeper you sign up for premium it's as cheap as 75 cents a month that'll get you everything So, uh, yeah, I had a witch on the program. I like women. I'm enjoying my dumb phone experience.
Trying to think what else. I've been getting up early too. I'm all motivated. I'm trying to improve myself. I'm trying to be productive. Gotta figure out what to do with these microphones. <laughs> it's mobile gear. Got all this gear. I could record anything at this point. If people see me coming with all these microphones, they'd be terrified. Would you mind talking to me? I'm just gonna stick this microphone in your face.